be in Luke because Sean Wu is bringing us the word today, and I wanted him to to have a choice of where he would preach from. And as he prepared and prayed, this was where he arrived at. And I I think the Lord has some really good things for us through Sean from Luke 15 today. So. For some of you who don't know Sean, Sean is uh, a seminary student. Sean is part of our church, a member uh, with his wife, Hannah, and he um, helps lead a care group and teaches adult Sunday school. Uh, great class, which you're still welcome to come to. I think we have one or two sessions left, um, and you can even jump in now. It's an excellent class. Uh, Sean's a very gifted young man, and part of our desire as a church is to see Sean um, prepared and evaluated, and by God's grace, sent to, to plant a church. Uh, so he's in process there, and our, our prayer, and, and we trust the Lord along the way. We want to be faithful to prepare and to evaluate, but our prayer is that God would indeed use Sean to lead, and along with his wife, and a team to plant a church. And our kind of our dream, just so you know, is, uh, is, is Boston, to plant a church into Boston as part of Sovereign Grace Ministry. So... Um, so it's exciting to think about that. So that's one thing we can be praying for as well this week. But um, I think for those of you who know Sean, and, and we'll see, he is a gifted teacher uh, and also just, a, I think, has some excellent gifts in pastoring. Many of you may not know that he actually has served as an interim pastor before, so he has experience pastoring and preaching as well uh, when he was a student or after, I think, his, after he graduated. Um, Actually, during, during seminary is when it was, right? Um, so Sean has some background, and, and, um, and so he's a gift to us as well. And we look forward to what the Lord's going to do. So what, let's welcome Sean up. I just want to take a minute to pray for him together and let him preach God's word. Thank you. Lord, we thank you for Sean, and we do uh, just thank you for your grace in his life. And Lord, I know each one of us, we are glad to see what you're doing, and we want to see you just uh, continue to use this young man, to raise him up and to do great and marvelous things. So would you bless him as he brings your word? May his eyes be on you. May we have ears to hear. Give him peace and joy and use him mightily, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Good morning. Okay. So I'll be speaking from Luke 15 this morning. So if you can turn with me to Luke chapter 15, verses 1 to 7. If you don't have your Bibles, if you raise your hand, um, the ushers can also get you Bibles that you can read through. You can also follow us along on the screen. Uh, So Luke 15, verses 1 through 7. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. This is the word of the Lord. Now, 
when you read the story, you've heard it many times. Uh, whose perspective did you read this from? And who were you imagining yourself to be in this story? Uh, because if I could venture a guess, most likely you were probably imagining yourselves in the shoes of Jesus. And you're probably critical of the Pharisees' legalism and hypocrisy. Am I right? That's how I read it <laughs> when I first read it. Um, and uh, that's a perfectly normal thing to do uh, because we, when we read stories, we imagine ourselves in the shoes of the protagonist. I mean, when we read about Cinderella or Prince Charming, we imagine ourselves to be them, not the witch or the mean sisters, right? So that's the way it works. And this is related to what social psychologists call the above-average effect. I don't know if you guys have heard of it. And uh, above-average effect is, is where people, relative to others, tend to overestimate their positive qualities and abilities and underestimate their inabilities and negative qualities. And we all kind of do that, naturally. <laughs> and if, to give you an example of that, in 1976, the College Board, which is the organization that administers the SATs, some of you guys just took it, I know John just took it, um, and you guys may, may have been a part of this survey if you took the test in 1976, and um, they asked their students uh, to rate themselves on a number of vague positive qualities. Uh, and one of them was leadership qualities. So rate yourselves in relation to others on your leadership quality. And 70% of them rated themselves as above average, <laughs> above, above the middle of the pack. And 85% of them uh, on their ability to get along well with others said that they're above average. 85% in the middle of the pack. And 25% of them uh, said that they're in the top 1% of people being able to get along well with others. So obviously 25% can't I mean, of the people can't be in the top 1%. So this is, illustrates the fact, you know, that you, the above average effect. And, and I'd like to submit to you that we're not above this, and we tend to do this as well. And that's why when we read the story, we think, we might think that we have the better ability to get along with the sinners. Uh, and we might not be as, we might think that we're not as judgmental and exclusive as the Pharisees. But I want you to imagine with me for a second of what it might be like to be in the shoes of the Pharisees here. Because the Pharisee, the name, comes from a Hebrew word that means to separate or to set apart. Just like we Christians sometimes like to call ourselves the set-apart people, the ones that are consecrated to God. That's what the Pharisees call themselves. They, that's what their name is. On top of that, they were the reformers of their day. They're the ones that wanted to raise the bar for the standard of holiness. They wanted to reform society and purify it. That's what they were seeking to do. And on top of that, they would respect the scholars of the day. And people held their interpretation of scripture to be authoritative. It's kind of like the scholars in the seminarians, the pastors of our day. Um, and they, for the large part, had the goodwill and the, and the good wishes of the people, the common people. So maybe we're not that different from the Pharisees, if we think of it that way. Um, and also, it's hard for us to... Uh, Understand the Pharisees when they're grumbling, grumbling against Jesus for receiving and eating with sinners and tax collectors because we can't imagine bad tax collectors, right? <laughs> because in our day, I mean, tax collectors are just simply doing their duty, right? They just do what they're supposed to do. But it's usually the people that are taxed, actually, that tend to cheat the system and lie. But in Jesus' time, that wasn't the case. The tax collectors oftentimes took more money than there was required. It says that in Luke 3.13, it shows. Um, and on top of that, these tax collectors were traitors. 
because they were the Jews that were extorting money from their own people to enrich themselves and the Roman government, which was occupying their nation. So they're traitors. So they were hated in their society for right reasons, for, for very good reason. And when we talk about sinners too, we have kind of tend to euphemize the word sinner uh, through our cliched phrases like we're all sinners and you got to hate the sin but love the sinner. And these are good and true statements and I'm not advocating that we stop using these phrases because they, they're true. Uh, but when we do that, we have kind of extracted the gravity and the seriousness out of the word sinner, of what it means to be a sinner. And when we think of sinner, we imagine people like us, people maybe that are repentant or remorseful for sin. They're sorry for having messed up and are begging for pardon. But sinners are not necessarily people like that, right? Sinners can be hardened and defiant people. They can be murderers. They can be prostitutes. They can be tax collectors like these. So when the Pharisees are grumbling against Jesus for receiving these tax collectors and sinners and eating with them, uh, they have good reason. And it's not just that he was talking to them. He was eating with them and that meant something more. Because in this culture, eating with them meant that you were going beyond mere acquaintance to acceptance. Just, it's like having your friends over at your house. You don't have strangers over at your house. You have your friends over at your house. That's why the Pharisees say Jesus received them and he ate with them. That's their problem. That's their issue. Okay. So if we think about this, then we're not that different from the Pharisees. And perhaps we actually don't, wouldn't want to hang out with these tax collectors and sinners after all. And in fact, most of us, I would say, don't associate with these kind of people even today. So if that's the case, then why is Jesus, the Son of God, the blameless one, the holy one, associating with these people, the tax collectors and sinners? And this is the point where Jesus tells the parable of the lost sheep. And this parable is about uh, a shepherd of modest means, and we know that because he seems to be guarding his own sheep instead of having a hired guard, as, as was customary. And he also only has 100 sheep. 100 sheep sounds like a lot, but in this culture, they had up to 300 sheep, and 300 sheep was considered large. So 100 is quite modest. Um, and on top of that, it's, the story seems to be taking place in the evening because the shepherds usually counted their sheep in the evening before taking them into the fold for the night. So this shepherd has already had a full day of work, of taking the sheep from one pasture to another, and sometimes having to bring back the stray into the herd after they broke rank through some outside distraction or whatnot. Um, and he's probably tired. He's looking forward to a good night's rest. And, uh, and he decides that he needs to count the sheep to make sure that no sheep is missing before he takes them into the fold. So he starts counting. 96, 97, 98, 99. I must have miscounted, so I'll count again. 96, 97, 98, 99. And this time his heart sinks as he realizes he's missing a sheep. His mind starts to race, and he scans the horizons to see where the sheep might have gone. And then he leaves the 99 sheep in the open country, it says in verse 4, to go search after that one lost sheep. And he runs briskly as he's thinking about the sheep He's jumping over crags and, and running and scouring every corner of the pasture to see where the sheep might be. And as the night deepens, his pace quickens. As he's thinking about this helpless sheep bleeding by a precipice or, or getting devoured by predators. 
And he searches like this until he finds the sheep, it says in verse 4. And at this point, some of you more skeptic, who are more skeptical might be asking this question. Like, I mean, did he really leave the 99 helpless creatures by themselves to go after that one sheep? That doesn't make sense at all, <laughs> right? I mean, that's, you, if you do the math, it doesn't make any sense to leave the 99 to go after that one lost sheep. But if we ask that question, we're missing the whole point of the parable. Because the whole point of the parable is that he's leaving the 99 to go after that one lost sheep. This is not a picture of a methodical, rational rescue. It's a picture of an irrational and reckless love of God. The shepherd's not going after that one lost sheep because that's a logical thing to do. It's not. He's going after that sheep because his love for that lost sheep compels him and that's the only thing he can do. And that's the love that God shows us. And it doesn't end there. When the shepherd finally finds the sheep, he hoists them onto his shoulders. He joyfully skips back home. He calls all his neighbors and friends to have a party at his house, all because of this one sheep that was found, even though he has 99 more. This is the father's love for the lost. And this is why we must love and seek sinners, just as God loves and seeks them. So what does loving and seeking sinners look like? I mean, it doesn't mean that you have to just drop everything that you're doing, your job, and then just dedicate the rest of your life to street evangelism. Maybe some of you might be called to that, but not all of you. Because God ordains our, his people to have various functions and roles in society, and it's important to be faithful to your vocation. And that's not what we're meant to do. But when you're doing all the things that you do every day, don't neglect the sheep, the lost sheep that are in the midst of you. Maybe you have a boss. He's a grouchy old man. He's fed up with life and nothing in life pleases him and nothing that you ever do for him at work is good enough for him. And whenever you turn the report, it's never thorough enough and he rolls his eyes with humiliating disdain. Makes you feel miserable. And it seems like his goal at, at the workplace is to make you always tense and on the edge. But instead of going out of your way to avoid him, like everybody else does, talk to him. Ask him what his plans are for Martin Luther King Day weekend. Show him genuine respect that no one else does. Love him and seek him. Maybe you have a mechanic that you go to, um, and you go to him reluctantly because there's no other services around. He's a sleazy guy, um, has inappropriate pictures all over his garage, and he can't even understand what he's saying because he has a very thick accent. Uh, you don't know where he's from. He has car gunk all over his face all the time. <laughs> he has a foul mouth, and he's constantly smoking. You don't really want to deal with him, but instead, start a conversation with him. Ask him where he's from, if he has family, and also how the business is going. And maybe joke with him that, you know, he must love your car for breaking down so much. And love him and seek him. Maybe for you younger guys and girls, it's the bully in your neighborhood. The ones that push you, push you around or don't include you in your games, in their games. Or maybe it's a sassy girl that likes to say mean things about you behind your back. 
But instead of holding a grudge against them, love them, pray for them, and seek them. Because this is, if if we're honest with ourselves at this point, then we might recognize our moral bankruptcy. That we simply don't have the capacity to love these kind of people. We just can't. Unless you recognize that this is what God did for us. So you see, the image of the shepherd and the sheep is not, it's, it's, it comes up quite often in the Bible. Um, and if you can turn with me to Ezekiel 34, there God compares the Israel's leaders to false shepherds that don't care, take care of their sheep. In Ezekiel 34, verses 3 and 4, he says this. Uh, Shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. And then, God makes a huge promise in verse 11 and the following. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on the day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines, and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. God has said that he will do this himself. And that is in fact what God did when he sent Jesus to fulfill this promise for us. And in John 10, 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for, his sheep, for my sheep. You were the lost sheep, and God did not stop at anything to save you. You were the lost sheep, and he was running after you. He would abandon everything. He abandoned his throne in heaven to come down to this earth, to take the form of the despicable, dirty, and destitute form of humanity so can he relate to us, so he can find us. And he took, he paid the ultimate price. He died for us. He laid down his life for us to pay the penalty for our sins. And then he resurrected so that he can give us new life. And when you received him into your life, God celebrated in heaven. The heavenly choirs erupting in praise and all the angelic hosts singing over you. This is the image that we have in this passage, Luke 15. And God loves all sinners that way. That's how he loves them outside of the walls of this church. And that's why we love and seek sinners. 
And that's the heart of mission and evangelism. It's not anything more complicated than that. I mean, we don't do missions and evangelism simply because that's what Jesus commanded us to do, even though he did command us to do that. We don't do it merely because that's the right thing to do, even though it is the right thing to do. We do missions and evangelism because that's the only thing we can do when we haven't touched by the love of God and we sense his love for the lost sheep. And that's his love for the lost. Some of you here are still lost and you don't even know it. It says in verse 7 of Luke 15, Jesus says, There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, does he really mean that there are 99 persons that need no repentance? What do you guys think? (laughs) I don't think that's what he means, right? Because in Romans 3.23, it says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In Isaiah 53.6, it says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him, that's Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. So we all, like sheep, have gone astray. All of us need to repent. So then what is he talking about? He's not talking about people that really don't need to repent. The 99 people that don't need to repent are the people like the Pharisees that think that they don't need to repent, even though they are so far from the glory and the holiness and the majesty of God. And in fact, seeking to save yourself, thinking that you are qualified, that itself is pride and is a sin against God. Let me continue with the analogy of the sheep to to talk about some ways we have fallen short of the glory of God and we need his assistance. Because the sheep have been called stupid animals and, uh, for, and for good reason. And experiments have actually shown that they're not actually stupid, but um, they still have these tendencies that would make us think so. Um, for example, sheep, especially the short and stocky ones that have full fleeces, have a tendency to roll over on their backs. And when they do, they can't get up by themselves. <laughs> yeah. I mean, these sheep, when they're rolled onto their backs, they're called cast sheep. And some of us are like the cast sheep. You're at the end of your rope. You've had enough of life. You're just about ready to call it quits, and you're about ready to give up. But God loves you and seeks you. He's asking you to put your hope in him and his kingdom. And if you do and you put your hope in him and his kingdom and not on the things of this earth, then you will have the strength to get up again on your feet. You just need to turn to him, repent, and call on him and receive him. Again, some sheep, or all sheep actually, have this herding instinct. And they just tend to follow the sheep that are in front without actually making independent judgments of themselves. So, when, for example, if a sheep in front smells a tasty patch of grass somewhere and jumps off a cliff, the sheep behind are likely to follow suit. They're pretty stupid that way. <laughs> but some of us are like that too, aren't we? We just follow the culture. We just follow the masses. And we don't even know what's going on. We live in a postmodern culture that tells us that we don't need God to save us. You can save yourself. Help yourself. Get these self-help books from the book. Read through it. Have your own religion. Have your own spirituality, and you can save yourself. 
They say, oh, you don't need God. You can just use our therapeutic products and our techniques. You can use our resources and knowledge and you can save yourself. But the scripture attests all throughout that our alienation from God is so profound that we can't bridge that gap on our own. We can't save ourselves. And that's why God had to send his one and only son. Do you think he would have done it any other way if he could? Yeah. He had to send his one and only son to die for us, to save us. And some of you are like the stray sheep. You think that there are better pastures somewhere else. Maybe you're living for your job. Maybe you're living for retirement. Or maybe you're living for the middle class dream of having a wife and kids and a dog. You know? <laughs> it's, it's not bad in itself. <laughs> or maybe you're living for the latest gadget out on the market. Or maybe you're living for what other people think of you, their esteem, their perception of you, for respect. But all of these things, none of these things are fully and finally meaningful unless they're understanding in context in relation to God. Because God is the creator of all things. He's the source of all life. That means meaning of life derives from him. Just like the artist who created a piece of art has the right to definitively say what that art means, and the potter has a right to say definitively what the purpose of that piece of pottery is. It is God who has the right to determine what we are meant to be. And it is from him derives all meaning of life. So you can't save yourself. You need to turn to him, call on him, and receive him. Let me tell you a true story from recent history to illustrate uh, this point. In 1989, um, there was an 8.2 magnitude earthquake in Armenia, and it killed over 30,000 people in less than four minutes. And amidst all the chaos and devastation, there was a father who, who left uh, his wife at home and went to uh, a school where he had dropped off his son earlier that day. When he arrived there, he found out the building was totally demolished. And as emotions and the memory of his beloved son began to flood him, his tears began to fill his eyes. And, and he tried to think clearly and at that time and to trace where he had dropped off his son earlier that day. And he traced his steps and to, find, to find where the son was. And uh, he went back to, to, to find where that classroom would have been. And when he found it, he began to dig through the rubble in search of his son. And at that time, other forlorn parents also arrived at the scene. They clutched their hearts and saying, my son, my daughter. And, and some of the well-meaning parents came to him and tried to dissuade him from doing that. Uh, we know you, we're all grieving. We've all experienced great loss. But you need to come to grips with reality. Look at the building. It's all gone. It's over. You're making this harder on yourself. You need to leave. But he kept on digging. Soon the fire chief came to him and told him, man, fire's breaking out all over the place. Explosions are taking place everywhere. You need to leave. You're endangering yourself and others by staying here. Please go. We'll take care of it. But he wouldn't budge. 
and he kept on digging stone after stone. Then the police came. Sir, you really have to go. There's nothing you can do. You can see that it's over. We'll handle it. Please go. And he still wouldn't go. And he kept on digging. He kept on digging for six hours. And then for 12 hours. His muscles were beaten. He couldn't hardly, he could hardly lift his arms anymore, but he kept on going for 24 hours, for 36 hours. And then at the 38th hour, as he moved the boulder, he heard the voice of his son. Dad, Dad, it's me. I knew you would come. This is the love that the father has for the lust. This is the love of the shepherd for the lost sheep. God came down to earth. He dug through the rubble of our sin. He paid the ultimate price by laying down his life for us so that we can live, so that we can have new life. And whether you are cast sheep, whether you are stray sheep, no matter where you are in your walk of life, God is even at this very moment seeking after you. He's loving you. He wants you to call on him and return to him. So turn to him. Receive him. And if you have already experienced the love of God, and if you already have a relationship with your father, remember that God loves all sinners this way. And he's not willing that any should perish. So let us be a church that loves and seeks sinners. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we are overwhelmed by your love for us. We do not deserve any of it. We have not earned any of it. But you give it to us freely. It is hard for us to imagine that God, who has all things in the world, will come down to save us. And Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would help us not just to know that love in our head, but to know it viscerally, to know it in our hearts, and to feel that love that you have for the lost everywhere we go and with everyone that we meet, no matter how unlovable they may be. Because we, in our sin, were your enemies, and we were unlovable, yet you loved us and pursued us. So we pray, Lord God, help us to be people of God that are set apart for your purposes, meaning to love and seek sinners that they may be brought back to your fold and so that we may rejoice with you and with the angels in heaven over everyone that returns. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks, John. That was excellent. And I believe the Lord has spoken through your preaching, through his word. I want to invite the band to come up.
And I want to take a little bit of time, short amount of time, um, just to pray and respond to his word. I think uh, there's two things I sense the Lord was doing. Uh, first, I think the Lord is calling folks who are maybe our cast sheep, strays, to come to him. My sense of that was that God himself was speaking through that to specific folks here. Um, and I want you to take it that way. Um, I believe the Lord's calling you to turn to him and receive the gift of forgiveness and life. And I want to pre pre present an opportunity for you to do that, um, to respond. Second group of people, I believe, are those that, like me, like many of us, are Pharisees at times. We don't understand the amazing love of God, the amazing grace of God for sinners, for us, because that's how, if you're a believer, that's how you got where you are, but also for those who don't yet know the Lord. I believe his heart is reflected in Luke 15, and I think he wants to teach us about that. He wants to change us and how we live, how we relate to that boss, how we relate to that mechanic, that kid in the neighborhood, whoever it might be. So I want to have a chance to reflect on that and respond as well. Um, so what I'd like to do is just have the band um, lead us in a worship song. And I just want to take some time after that just to, to pray briefly. And, and for you as you sing, just to consider, what is the Lord calling me to? Am I that cast sheep that needs to turn to him right now? Or am I that Pharisee that needs to say, Lord, please forgive me. Change my heart. I want to be like you. So let's stand and sing, and then we'll pray.